0: The same is true uh, for the richness of explore, for exploring the richness uh, of the Bible. It takes effort, and how do I know that? Uh, well, that's because the Bible tells us that uh, it takes effort, uh, but it also uh, promises that the effort is is so worth it. And so, let's consider uh, Psalm one, uh, verses one and two. It says. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seats of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. We can see that the blessed man is the one who delights in God's law and that this comes about by meditating on His Word day and night. And if we were to meditate on this passage itself, a bunch of questions may come up. Like, what does it look like to meditate on God's law? His Word day and night, what does that look like? Should one be meditating on large passages or small passages? What are the benefits to meditating on it day and night? Well, this passage doesn't necessarily answer that particular question, but the psalm goes on to say that if we do, we are like a healthy tree which bears fruit, is able to withstand serious changes to our environment, and prospers. And who doesn't want that? Uh, Here's another question. Think about this. What happens if we don't meditate on God's Word day and night? I'll just leave that with you. I'm not going to talk about that. Another final question we might ask is why we need to meditate on God's Word. Can't we just take it for what it is? Isn't it meant to be accessible to all humanity? I think we all know that you know getting it, uh, i.e. the Bible, doesn't always happen on the first pass. But why is that? Well. Proverbs 1, next book over, gives us a hint. If we look at verses 5 through 7 of Proverbs 1, it says, Let the wise hear and increase in learning, and the one who understands obtain guidance, to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction." So this, ba- this passage tells us that the Bible contains 1. Proverbs, 2. Sayings, 3. Words of the wise, and 4. Riddles. I think I knew about the first three. Uh, But who knew that the Bible contains riddles? But apparently it does. Uh, And the thing about all of these categories, all four of these categories, is that they take time to understand. You have to hike down into the canyon. And you can ask anyone who hikes long distances. It takes preparation and effort. So how should we approach the Bible? And this is where analogies come in play. If you're trying to put together a thousand piece puzzle, there are strategies to give you a chance. One starts with corners and edge pieces and looking at similar color similarities can help. But I don't know about you, but it can seem like the Bible is hard to understand. It's hard to find the edges sometimes. It's hard to find the corners. There are 67 books written by different authors. So when we say the Bible is a unified story, all pointing to Jesus, I can heartily agree, but understanding it as a reality is a different thing. One way of looking at the problem that has helped me understand is related to the picture of Louis Armstrong that I gave you. and You you can pull that up and take a look at it. Meditate on it. This type of photo is called a photomosaic you can recognize the face of Mr. Armstrong's face in the photo. And if you look closely, you can see that it is like a mosaic. A mosaic is a group of small images that come together to form a larger image. Floors are the original, floors and walls are the original mosaics, made up of thousands of smaller tiles. This uh, photo mosaic is made up of smaller images and they're all of Louis Armstrong. And the image, the smaller images, fool the eye into seeing a larger image. But if you imagine the smaller images, each image tells a different story about the life of Louis Armstrong. The whole is made up of smaller, interconnected parts. And when you meditate on the smaller parts, it helps tell the story of the larger picture, in a more detailed and intimate way. Another way to approach the Bible is to notice the repetition of themes in a story. In a movie, this can be triggered by repeated words and themes, musical themes, and the use of lighting and camera angles. Uh, For those who are familiar with the Lord of the Rings, that's a classic example of how different characters respond to the temptation of the ring, which represents power. Some characters, like Schmiegel or Boromir or Frodo, succumb to it. Other characters resist it, but in different ways, like Bilbo, who just barely resisted, and Gandalf and Galadriel through fear and trembling. And then there's Aragon, for whom the ring poses no temptation at all. The similar way similar ways that the directors of the trilogy portrays this temptation or these temptations, clues the moviegoer in understanding that a temptation is taking place right before your eyes. In each temptation, I'm sorry, in each temptation scene is hyperlinked to the other. The audience is invited to meditate on the different character traits of the character vis-a-vis the power, the temptation of power. This method gives the audience a fuller understanding of what the entire spectrum of temptation can look like from the human experience, just by thinking about and meditating on this theme from the movie trilogy. And so goes the Bible. Like a well-crafted symphony with repeated, repeated themes and measures and notes, the Bible is a finely crafted narrative brought together by multiple human authors and inspired by the Holy Spirit. So let's take a look at one theme that is played out, and in doing so, we can see the individual tiles that go into forming the larger picture. There are similarities, but there are differences, and we're called to contemplate both. This week, I want to look at the creation story in Genesis 1 and 2. As a macro-temple and how that theme is connected to Jesus. Next week, I want to show you how cool genealogies are and what part they play in the larger Bible story. They are so cool. Unbelievable. Eye-opening. Okay. So let's look at uh, Genesis 1 and 2. We look there, and we see how the theme in the creation story gets repeated in the stories about the building of the tabernacle, in the temple, and finally, in Jesus. In Genesis 1, creation is depicted as the cosmic prototype, which all later temples are symbolic miniatures. In Genesis 2.15, God takes Adam from the dirt land, outside the garden, where he created him, and places him in the garden to, quote, work and keep it. Okay, Aaron mentioned this last week. This work and keep language is repeated in Numbers 3, 7 and 8, and Numbers 18, verse 7, which outline the priestly duties suggesting that Adam had a priestly role in the caring for the garden, the place that is filled with God's presence, just as the tabernacle and temples, the temple are. If you could have walked into the tabernacle or temples, you would have seen trees and animals and spiritual beings all woven into the curtains and in the walls and all around you, reminding you of the creation story. That's because in both the creation story and the temples, it is a place where heaven and earth overlap. We must remember that the creation that in the creation story, God is in love creating an environment that is designed to allow his creation to flourish. The drama starts in verse 2 of chapter 1 and it's posed as a problem. The earth is described as a wilderness and a wasteland. Darkness and deep waters predominate. And each of these descriptions was intended to communicate to the reader that before God started with his creative powers, the heavens and the earth were in chaotic disorder without function or purpose. These themes of the wilderness, darkness, and the sea as being fraught are repeated throughout the Bible, for example, in the Noah story, or the Exodus crossing, uh, the Israelites crossing the Red Sea, or the, then, and then wandering in the desert, uh, in the wilderness. And I'm sure you can think of, of many others. They are literally everywhere, and they are part of the Mosaic riddles, the, Bible, the biblical hyperlinks, if you will, that we are invited to think about as we meditate on God's Word. The problem of chaos in verse 2 begins to be solved as we get the picture of God's Spirit hovering over these chaos waters and His creative powers go to work. Over the next seven days, starting with God's presence alone, He provides the light, and notice there's no sun or moon, and divides the darkness. It is appropriate that he start with his presence to solve the problem of chaos, disorder, and non-functioning environment. And then at the end of every day, in a poetic style, even though it's a narrative, there's a refrain, like a song. And it says, there was evening, and there was morning, and the first day. In day two, he separates the waters into two areas, one below and one above, like a dome. It's the the only day where God does not say, and God saw it was good. In day three, God gathers the waters together and and lets the dry land appear, and vegetation appears, making special mention of fruit trees and their seeds. Days four through six mirror day 1 through 3 in that the environment created in those first three days is enhanced in days 4 through 6, with day 1 corresponding to day 4, day 2 corresponding to day 5, and day 3 corresponding to day 6. Even though Genesis is written in a narrative style, it is quite poetic in its form in the use of repeated words and themes. That the days 1 through 3 correspond to days 4 through 6 invites the reader to contemplate and meditate on each of these differences and the similarities in the text. As my friend Tim likes to say, it's worth several cups of tea and long walks to think about. On the seventh day, God rests, and significantly, that is the only day that does not contain the frame, then there was evening, and then there was morning, suggesting that day seven has no end. When we understand that, that God is resting here, it does not mean that he was tired, but rather that he has completed the task and that he is present and in a sense taken up residence. This conclusion is further supported by the fact that there are seven days. and The number seven in Hebrew was symbolic uh, in, in ancient Near Eastern and Israelite culture and literature. It communicated a sense of fullness or completeness. Uh, in fact, in the in the Hebrew language, seven is spelled with the same consonants as the word complete or full. Even the pronunciations are almost indistinguishable. When you say Shavat and Shavah, you hardly can tell. But when you hear it in the text, both ideas are coming to mind. That God blessed the seventh day is a theme that is repeated in the tabernacle and the temple narratives. What does it mean? Well, Matilda Fry says, quote, set apart from all other days, the blessing of the seventh day establishes the seventh part of created time as a day when God grants his presence in the created world. It is then his presence that provides the blessing and the sanctification. The seventh day is blessed and established as part Uh, as the part of time that assures fruitfulness, future orientation, continuity, and permanence for every aspect of life within the dimension of time. The seventh day is blessed by God's presence for the sake of the created world, for all nature, and for all living beings. That's from her book, uh, The Sabbath in the Pentateuch. This makes sense uh, of the pervasive appearance of seven patterns, you know, the seven patterns in the Bible. In each later biblical temple, and by temple I'm talking about tabernacle and the temple, uh, the, the seventh day, as in the creation story, is where God's presence fills uh, the sacred space. So let's take a look at that temple, that, or that temple, that um, table uh, that I provided to you. It's designed to allow you to make comparisons between the uh, creation story and uh, the, the building uh, and blessing of the, the tabernacle and the temple. Just as the created order was established through seven divine commands, and God said, let there be light, the tabernacle is established through seven divine commands, and Yahweh spoke to Moses. You can see that on the, uh, on the table, and I commend you uh, to, to look at those uh, when you get some free time. When the tabernacle was completed, there were seven acts of obedience in response to the divine commands. In building the temple, Solomon issued seven petitions, each starting with, Blessed be Yahweh, who spoke to my father, David. And when the tabernacle and the temple were completed, Yahweh rested in that he set up residence and blessed Israel with his presence, showing that the blessing of the seventh day continues without end. Even the architecture of the temples, as I mentioned before, points to the creation stories as trees and fruits and spiritual beings are all over the interior of the temple reminding us that we are in the divine presence of Yahweh. These literary devices, or hyperlinks, are no accidents. It shows the brilliance of the biblical authors in their storytelling abilities. Remembering that the Torah was mostly read aloud, these repetitions help the listener to remember and meditate on the depths and beauty and meaning and significance of God's word. Now let's spring forward to the New Testament and Paul's letter for further reference to the creation and the temple. Remembering that Paul is a Pharisee of Pharisees and fully studied in the Hebrew scriptures, he was thoroughly schooled in the creation story and temple imagery as evidenced by the fact that he used it throughout his letters. And I uh, would commend you to uh, look at 1 Corinthians 3, 16 to 17. uh, 1 Corinthians 6, uh, verse 19. Ephesians 2, 19 to 22. And you can also see 1 Peter 2, 4 to 9. But for now, let's focus on Ephesians 2, 19 to 22. And here I'm quoting. So it's Ephesians 2, 19 to 22. So then... You were no longer strangers and aliens, but you were fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for, for God by the Spirit. That's the end of the, uh, of the passage. So in this passage, you'll, you'll remember that Paul is describing a new humanity, which is unified in Jesus, Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free, built on the foundation of love and service and unity. Jesus is the beachhead of heaven-invading earth, but he's also the cornerstone. We, his people, are the physical expression of little Jesus' filling the world and furthering the invasion into enemy territory of the old creation, which has been tarnished by sin. This temple language illustrates God's presence filling the temple just as the Holy Spirit fills Jesus's followers and we fill the world with people who live by God's wisdom and the law of love and justice and mercy and freedom and worship and that's why Paul and Peter refers to us as the temple of God and we fill the world with God's presence by bringing in the nations into the family of God, by making disciples and teaching others in the way that they should go. So our tour, in one sense, is complete, and in one sense, it's just beginning. What we've talked about today is just the tip of the iceberg. Uh, There's so much more to discover about God and his word and his plan for us. We tend sometimes to look down upon the people from biblical times, like they're less intelligent than us. Uh, C.S. Lewis calls this chronological snobbery. But the more you study and get into the weeds of the literary structure and the anthropology and the context, the more you can see that that snobbery that we might feel towards the biblical writers or people from those times is completely unjustified. Their creativity, bolstered by the power of the Holy Spirit, is something to behold. And I've spent the last two years uh, hiking down into the canyon of the Bible, and it has been amazing. And I encourage you to do the same. So start mining those jewels. Grab a cup of tea. And start meditating day and night on God's scriptures. Um, yeah, that's all I have. Are there any questions or comments or anything you're interested in talking about that I mentioned? <laughs> I guess I remember when I was a younger believer and just getting hung up on little things like this gospel says this number, but this one says this number. Yeah. And they were just Wow. Yeah, and then I look at stuff like this and like, there's no way that people just made this up. <laughs> um, there's no way. Yeah, it's yeah. Like it just like reaffirms faith. I think seeing themes like that. I totally agree. Yeah, and it is—it's it's definitely deep in my faith. Yeah, seeing a, the, the themes throughout the reinforces the importance of the Old Testament still to us now. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's easy just to look at the New Testament and be like, oh, it's. It's new, so it's the only thing that we need to focus on. But seeing the themes played out from the very, very beginning, just adds, like, oh, I can't ignore the Old Testament because it's so rich and, you know. Yeah, you, you do so at your own peril. Yeah. I, I know there's a pastor uh, down in Georgia who suggests that we should not would not study the, the Old Testament. Yeah. The, the problem with that is, is that all of the New Testament writers uh, they, they, that 's all they studied yeah. and it was the Old Testament that convinced them that Jesus was, was Messiah. Okay. So I think that's, yeah that 's a good point yeah and i didn 't even go I could have gone into uh, in revelation that the, the it all ends up in a temple i mean that, that that coming together of the heaven and the earth and um and and that's even more exciting i think in some ways yeah